Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 97. With Samuel Holston and Kieran Goy, the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, Brain Tools. This podcast focuses on practical brain science for everyday people. Samuel and Kieran provide engaging, science-backed episodes to help you to learn how your brain works when it comes to sleep, stress, communication, and so much more. What I love about their podcast that's different from others, besides the fact that these guys are absolutely hilarious while covering a very serious topic, is that they offer a regular episode, then they have a 20-minute breakout episode with six practical brain tools or steps that you'll need to master to be successful with the brain tip for that episode. It's a great way to access the strategies quickly and easily to ensure implementation. I first met Samuel on LinkedIn when we first connected last summer and we became immediate friends with neuroscience and emotional intelligence in common. At that time, I had no idea just how much I would learn from their podcast and that we would check back in with each other occasionally offering ideas, suggestions, tips, and encouragement for each other. I learned that Samuel began studying neuroscience at age 15 and I immediately asked him to be a guest on our podcast. It took a few months, but when we were finally ready, I grabbed this opportunity to speak with him today. So here's a bit about Samuel. On top of being the co-host of the Brain Tools podcast, he's a freelance copywriter from Melbourne, Australia. He says he's not a scientist, but he's been obsessed with the brain and cognitive science since he was 15 years old. A bit about Kieran. In addition to being the co-host of the Brain Tools podcast, Kieran Goy is the director of Elevate Education, where he co-founded the Singapore branch that helps over 40,000 students each year across 10 countries in Asia with workshops and online learning courses focused on improving learning skills. I can't wait to introduce you to Kieran Goy and Samuel Holston. This is Andrea Samadhi on the Neuroscience Meet Social and Emotional Learning podcast, and I'm so excited to welcome both Samuel Holston, located in Australia, and Kieran Goy in Singapore to the podcast today. How's it going, both of you? Oh, really well. I mean, the shine is signing. It's a Friday. It's fantastic. (laughs) It's It's a pretty good day down here in Melbourne, Australia. We have eased restrictions so no more lockdowns uh and summer's coming so i'm I'm very excited and happy to be here it's so wild um how i I follow some of my friends are in australia on the gold coast and it's it's getting cold here in arizona starting to wear gloves while hiking and um he's posting all these pictures at the beach playing volleyball it's just so weird how seasons are different yeah it's, it's so strange i got a friend in chicago um, and one of the things he found the weirdest was that we wear shorts during Christmas. Like all, all the pictures of Santa in Australia have shorts <laughs> on. And it just totally tripped him out. He's like, oh my God, here it's all snow and inside. And you guys have barbecues on the beach? The, the best part though is you, you still have, you, at least you both have seasons. In Singapore, we've just got one season across the entire year, which is like hot 30 degrees and then uh, complete humidity. So I'm kind of jealous that you have the seasons, to be honest with you. Wow, I didn't know that, Karen. That's that's wild. And this is this is kind of crazy for us. You know, uh, we were just talking before we came on that I've been following your Brain Tools podcast since the summer, since I met Samuel on LinkedIn, and uh, it's just wild to finally get a chance to meet like this. Isn't it crazy that we're all kind of connected and we know each other? Yet now we're meeting face to face. It's crazy. It's, it's so surreal, especially because I've also been listening to your podcast so much to finally put uh, the face to the name in real time is a totally different experience. <laughs> I know, it's right? Totally it's making me smile. I know. This is hilarious. Like, I feel like I, I'm, I know you guys like your, your brothers. I know you guys inside and out and don't tell mom. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're the naughty brothers kind of getting in trouble and mischief, but we try to have fun. Exactly. <laughs> 
Well, before I get to the questions, guys, I want to know how did you guys both meet? You know, someone's in, Samuel's in Melbourne here, and we've got Kieran in Singapore. I'm guessing from LinkedIn, looking at your profiles, that you met through university. Is that correct? Samuel. So we we actually (laughs) met uh, a little bit earlier than that. Kieran and I both went to the same high school. Uh, but Kieran was a year older than I. And then during high school, we uh, both participated in a, a leadership program um, teaching some of the younger students. And so we spent a fair bit of time that way, uh, getting to know each other and resonating. But uh, during university, we did, actually didn't speak that much. Um, we hated each other. Enough. Let's be honest. No, we didn't like each other. No, I'm, strong <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> strong words. It was one way. It, it was it's one. Kind of, it's wild. How did you guys you know, start this podcast, Brain Tools. Where did you decide this? Did you, I, I imagine that you sit there, you know, you're having a cup of coffee and you've got like a napkin out and you're drawing your brain. That's how, how I, I'm thinking it happened. But how did you guys decide to start Brain Tools? Do you want me to take this one, Karen? No, you know what? I'm going to chime in. Um, so basically I, uh, I saw uh, Sam basically posting on LinkedIn a fair bit and Sam reached out, I think maybe about two years ago, um, just in, inquiring about what I was doing with Elevate uh, in sort of the education space. And we started a conversation there. And then one thing led to another, I'm sure you know, you have a Zoom call with someone you know, like you haven't connected with for a while. And then we we're chatting about neuroscience. And I think we just fell in love with each other based on neuroscience, to be honest with you. Um, and then, yeah, by the end of it, we were like, hey, do you want to start a podcast? Do you want to give it a crack? Um, and then honestly, that's literally how it started. And we just started putting episodes together um, in the hope to, to help people understand their brains a little bit better. That's amazing because it, it's never like a like a planned thing, right? It just kind of most people that I'm talking to and even how it happened, I bought a template for a website and it had a podcast theme and my web designer and I was behind the design of the website too, but he goes, you can just delete the podcast part. And I was already interviewing people and putting them in this membership area. And I thought, well, you know what? I might as well just figure out what this RSS feed thing is and then just launch the podcast. And so it's never like a planned thing. Like, oh, I'm gonna do this podcast. It just kind of falls into your lap, or do you think? I think so. I think the best things often happen like that. It's just complete happenstance. You right. know, it just comes along. So I didn't know that's how your podcast started. That's, that's super interesting. Yeah, it's, it was a mix between that. And then there was also this need, like I applied to mm. speak at this social emotional learning conference and worked really hard on my presentation and submitted. And then I got an email back that I got declined for it and that 850 other people were declined also. And one of the people that were declined were the superintendent that I follow out of Chicago. And I thought, he's got brilliant stuff. I know my stuff is good. And then there's 800 and something other people. So I figured I was going to launch the podcast to give those people a voice. So there was like Mm. two sides to it, the website template that just I happened to buy that was a podcast theme. And then this scenario that happened, it was all like January, February of 2019. And then I was like, just sitting there going, what, how do I do this? Just Googling the steps and figuring it out. So that's, that's really where it, where it started. I love that. That's a, that's a great origin story. It started from like a true need, which is kind of the same for us. I remember when we were first talking, we both said, it's crazy how, how much understanding the brain helps everyone in their everyday life. And yet barely anyone understands how their brains work. And so that was the big thing for us was overcoming that and helping, you know, propagate this information about how your brain works in ways most people can understand because it's so important. Totally. And when I, when I got declined to speak at that thing, the superintendent, he, he's reached out to me like throughout this whole thing. One of probably one of my biggest supporters. And he said, imagine Mm -hmm. if you got chosen to speak, and you were in front of like maybe a hundred people and the reach for where we are now, like a hundred over 110 countries were, were just under 38,000 downloads of, of the podcast. And it, we would never have seen that. I don't think so. You just never know. Right. You never know. It's the, the, the old silver lining thing. Talk about alternate histories. That's pretty amazing. Though. 110 countries. That is mind boggling. Congratulations yeah. and well done. Do you guys ever look at your statistics and see like how, how many countries you're reaching? Do you guys ever do that? 
It's not a good enough. question. Uh, not, not really, to be honest with you. I think we just always assume that people uh, from Australia are listening to our stupid accents, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's kind of it's like a geography lesson when I, when I um, go into the statistics and see who's listening where and what countries. And I'm like, is that, I don't even know that country. And I'm writing them all down and then I'm counting them, keeping it counted. This is, it's been like more education, doing this podcast, researching, learning about people, and then actually having to ask them questions. You have to know what you're asking them. You can't just say, hey, how's it going? Let's talk about what the book that you've written. And then you don't have anything to say about it. So I, I think it's quite an education doing this. It's been amazing. Do you guys agree it's been good for you? Yeah, I, totally, I, I think we totally agree. We were talking about this just the other day. And the research that goes into each episode, you learn more about um, the neuroscience than you had previously when you really do a deep dive. Um, and so we always find that like the podcast is almost like teaching a lesson to ourselves to make sure we're consolidating the information and we know what's going on. And the fact that mm. um, like your podcast, other people can benefit from listening and being, you know, a wallflower um, all the better. Totally agree. There's also that endowment effect uh, where when you teach something or you have to pass information on, the process in doing so helps you better comprehend and understand it yourself and also improves overall retention. So in a way we're helping ourselves as we help other people, which I think is pretty amazing. And maybe you find that the same. Absolutely. Like every podcast lesson that I'm talking to, people are giving advice and I'm thinking, you know, am I doing that? And that that's what I'll, I'll go into the questions because a lot of your podcast I've really dove deep into because you give such solid science backed uh, strategies for it. So I, I really enjoy that. And I don't have the neuroscience background. I am working on a neuroscience certification with Mark Robert Waldman, my researcher. It's a year long mm -hmm. certification, a study program. I'm always behind. I'm never up to date <laughs> with what we're supposed to do. And uh, oftentimes he gives us work to do and I look at it and I have no idea what it's about. But then someone on a podcast will mention something about it and I'll start to make the pieces and put the pieces together. So it's definitely the, the best education that, that, that I've ever had, for sure. Mm, totally agree with that. Well, let's get into the questions, you guys. For the past two months, I've been focused on health and the brain, especially after I watched this documentary. It was from Dr. David Perlmuter, and he did this show. It was called The Alzheimer's, The Science of Prevention. And it aired a few months ago, and it really just talks about some strategies for health that are really important for Alzheimer's prevention. And I wasn't even thinking about Alzheimer's prevention, but I just started noticing all these strategies that are uh, important for the brain we're talking about on the podcast. And so I just thought, you know, it's really important for me to just go into this. And it brought me into going and getting a brain scan. And then I saw your episode and you guys are way younger than me, but you launched your podcast with the topic of sleep. And that's one of the five health staples that they talk about. And it's come up on so many of the podcasts that I've done, how important it is that we focus on our sleep. So why did you think sleep was so important to launch your podcast with? That, that's a really great question. Uh, there were two things we kind of identified when it came to sleep to launch it. Number one was when we launched, it was during the middle of lockdown and the COVID crisis. And a lot of the people we were speaking to and even ourselves were noticing that our sleep was lacking. I had lots of friends come to me and say, I'm struggling to get to sleep properly. My routines are disrupted. My sleeping patterns are disrupted. Uh, my circadian rhythm is just all off because I'm not going to work. And so we knew that was a big problem. Uh, and then the flip side of that coin is if you look at all the literature, all the neuroscience, especially recently, and even across happiness, wellness, uh, and the body too, the number one correlate to improving all those things is always sleep. It's the number one thing they recommend um, across everything. So we knew it was probably the, the top thing anyone can do for themselves is to improve their quality of sleep just because it has this total host of neuro benefits. It improves your emotional regulation by helping reset your pituitary gland. It cleans out toxic waste byproducts overnight. So your brain actually flushes cerebral spinal fluid through your brain and cleans out all the junk that builds up over the day from neuronal processes. Um, and it does a whole bunch of other things too for cognition and learning. You actually replay your memory. So all these things tied in to make it this 
in my opinion, probably the most important thing anyone can do for themselves is improve their sleep. And we knew people were struggling. So that was, in my perspective, why we chose it. Love it. What, what about you, Kieran? Yeah, very similar to, to Sam's sentiment. I think, um, I think it's probably by Matt Walker when he wrote that book. But I think he said, you know, if you, spend, if you live to 80, if you're fortunate enough to get there, you spend 35 years of your life sleeping. And if that 35 years had no return on investment whatsoever, it's the biggest mistake Mother Nature's ever made. And I think that's, that really resonates. It's like, why would we do this thing so often and for so long if it didn't have any, any benefit to it? And I think from um, my perspective, when we were you know, working in education in Singapore, we found that like the average number of hours a student sleeps in Singapore is about four or five hours. And cram culture is so, so prevalent. And you're sitting there being like, you know, that the number one thing you can do for cognitive performance is get better sleep in terms of your prefrontal cortex, your ability to actually problem solve and, you know, your long-term and short-term memory. So I think those things stood out being like, wow, we don't appreciate sleep as, as much as we really should given how much we do it for, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I never really started looking at sleep. I always thought I was doing well until I went and got my brain scanned and the, the guy doing my evaluation who was a sleep expert for pro athletes said, Andrea, your brain is sleep deprived. And, and I thought, wow, I had no idea. So that was. That's, that's so hard. funny. So they actually equate sleep deprivation to being a little bit drunk. And you know, when people can be a little bit intoxicated and they don't think they're intoxicated, yeah. you almost go through the same process when you're sleep deprived. So people who are sleep deprived think they're fine, even though they're performing worse cognitively and their body is suffering. Yeah, it is crazy. crazy. It is crazy. I remember um, reading this guy's book, Dr. Shane Creato, and he talks about the the fact that just a couple of hours of of, um, sleep deprivation, and it equates to like two or three drinks. Yeah. And driving and being sleep deprived is the same as drinking and driving. And it's just a wild comparison to think and, and it just makes sense because you know when you're tired you're you're not aware you're just not mm. and yeah that was that was eye-opening for me and then the key thing that I learned from from the tips that that we had with some of the sleep experts was that you know trying to get like a 20 minute nap in the day and I've always thought well that's kind of lazy like you know get a nap in the day but I, I didn't know where else to put it because I'm getting up so early and I'm jamming in exercise that I need early in the day. I didn't know where else. And then he starts talking about the fact that Google has these sleep pods and it's acceptable <laughs> for Google now. So why wouldn't somebody working from their home think that it's okay to get a 20 minute nap? It's just that shifting of your mindset. Yeah, mindset it's not shift. Lazy. Yeah, totally. Uh, they also, NASA did a study and they found that when uh, their pilots took a 26 minute nap, that performance improved by over 40%. Yeah. So, I mean, if NASA is recommending you do it, then maybe it's a good idea is the way oh, I saw it. Got all the big players. Hey, we've got Google yeah. here. We've got NASA here. NASA. We've got to listen to somebody. <laughs> I know. It's just so weird. I just can hear my dad in the back of my head going, you're going to have a nap in the middle of the day. Are you crazy? You know, it's just that, you know, maybe how we were raised that you, Mm. you work a certain amount of time, like the old way, but the new way is definitely putting our health first. And that's definitely a mindset shift. But so let's go on to your second episode. You focus on well-being, And I think well-being is such a hot topic these days, especially with what happened with coronavirus. And you guys covered it really well on your podcast. And you list self-awareness as one of the tools for well-being to understand your stress response and what it looks like. Like when you're stressed, do you go into fight, flight, or freeze? And I just had somebody talk about this on one of my podcasts to know what your stress response is. And I've started thinking about, well, what's mine? And I know when I'm stressed, I grab my shoes and I go hike. But what's the best way for us to recognize what our stress style is? Should we kind of have an idea ourselves or should we ask our friends and family, like, how am I when I'm stressed? What's the best way to get this awareness? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think um, it's always a bit of both, as I'm sure you know. It's like always you need to find, you know, family and friends and people around you that give you that bird's eye perspective, but you've also got to generate it yourself. And I think 
when Sam and I were preparing for the episode, speaking to a lot of people about well-being, this sort of EQ model of leadership really came up, which is, you know, in order to develop self-awareness, you need self-reflection and then self-awareness leads to self-regulation and then emotional intelligence can be uh, increased, so to speak, or an outcome of that. And when we were speaking to people, a lot of the time, um, they didn't really know what their triggers were. Um, you know, what, what actually does trigger my stress? What are my symptoms of stress? And some basic questions about who you are um, and stimulating that can, you know, obviously help recognize the situations you might find yourself in. Um, and for me personally, whenever I'm, I'm stressed, I'm more of a freeze. I always go and go straight into avoidance behavior and I want to leave the situation immediately and run for the bomb shelter. But um, I think, you know, recognizing those things and really listing out those symptoms and backtracking to like, hey, when do they actually pop up um, is generally speaking what we sort of found is the, the best sort of self-awareness sort of tool. So basically journaling in reality and then validating that through, um, believe it or not, like, you know, just your parents, asking your parents, hey, you see me at my worst. You see me being really, really stressed. What did, uh, what did you see? Uh, and does that, you know, validate and confirm with what, uh, with what you do? Yeah, I think that's a big one. Just asking that question. I mean, I've asked it to my partner before. It's like, you know, what do I do when I get stressed out? And she said, oh, well, usually you get quite intense and your sentences get short and you get very direct. And so now I, I have that in the back of my mind as this cue for recognizing when stress is kicking in, if I'm starting to do these things, and then I'll take a moment to reflect on that. So then, so your stress response, Kieran, is freeze. Mine is flight and then what's your Samuel? My, mine's fight fight <laughs> you're in the, the absolute one percent you fight I love I'm it. 1%. <laughs> wow well at least we know now what we need to do to overcome this but that's that's pretty powerful just to even name it um and uh from your episode overcoming fear I want to know what happens at the brain level when we name our fear. We just named our emotions, but what I've said it like a hundred times on my podcast, you name it and you tame it. Um, Mm. Why does writing down the emotion or naming it reduce the fear or help you get through it? This is a, a great question. Actually, when I was reflecting on the other day, so there's a process in the brain when you name something called effect labeling, and it's the same for most emotions and feelings, fear inclusive. And what happens basically is the process of you going through and looking for the language and the words to name it. I, you know, I'm feeling fearful or I'm scared of this requires your brain to shift its processing away from fear and from the amygdala and the insula and the other parts of your brain where fear occur and, and tran- transpire to language processing, your prefrontal cortex, Broca's slash Wernick's area. And as a result, you're literally taking away the resources needed to feel fearful and putting them in the part of your brain's responsible for thinking and for processing language. So when you name something, you're really telling your brain to stop thinking and focusing on feeling fear and instead focusing on finding words and language to describe it, which is where that taming component comes in. And there's been quite a lot of research around this effect labeling process, and it works really well with all emotions. Um, So they they did one particular piece of research uh, where they found effect labeling almost completely disrupts the amygdala processing where, uh, which upregulates and downregulates the way you experience fear. That's powerful. Anything to add, Kieran? Sam, that was very eloquent. That was a very good answer. (laughs) Um, Not really, to be honest. I think, I think, I don't know if we, we can all appreciate this, but sometimes going to that, you know, downward negative rumination spiral when it comes to, to fear. And I think there's that quote by George Adair that says, all you've ever wanted is on the other side of fear. And I think that whole idea of understanding what is the basis of that fear um, and actually, you know, that conscious one awareness, but that conscious thinking through what is it may, might actually differentiate what we think it is versus what it actually is. And making them the same um, becomes a really important driver as, as Sam has obviously articulated in terms of naming, you know, and naming it um, to obviously understand it. Yeah. We're often scared of things that we're uncertain about or don't know like you know there's that often uh, often expression used to articulate how people are scared of the unknown or things they don't understand so i feel like when you label it and when you give it a name it suddenly becomes so much more approachable because you understand it totally so my neuroscience researcher mark waldman had us do this activity and for years it's called the crap board so writing down (laughs) your conflicts resistances um, I'm going to forget the A now, anxieties, 
and problems. So writing them all out, and then you've got to look at them and list from one to 10, what's the likelihood that this is going to happen. And I've always done this, and he explained it in a way not as good as, as, as you did, Samuel, there. You talked about how the resources in the brain, when you name it, go from the worry to the language center. So that's why it's taking the energy away from me worrying. He just mm. said in a certain way, it's like a computer, like putting a disc and getting it out of your head and somewhere else. So now I kind of see they're the same thing. It's getting it out of your head and onto paper, and then it doesn't look so bad. And then you say, is this real? Like, let's just say one of my worries is, you know, this podcast is never going to be successful or something, or maybe something you're writing or working on, like this book isn't going to, it's going to be a flop. Is it real? Well, it hasn't happened yet. So it's normally things that we're worried about that might happen or might not happen. So it's when you can look at the, the worry or the doubt or the fear, you can analyze whether it's real or imagined. That's another way to look at it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a really powerful frame. Yeah, I totally agree with that because it's like all the stories that we tell ourselves. Like um, Sam and I recently spoke on one of our podcasts about you know, the brain being a pattern recognition machine. And it just loves to complete the story. It doesn't like incomplete narratives. So a lot mm. of the time, you know, completing that story uh, can sometimes lead us astray. <laughs> so on, on your episode of Making Habits Stick, you quote Albert Einstein, who says that compounding is the greatest mathematical discovery of all time. <laughs> can you talk about the importance <laughs> of building good habits and breaking bad ones and why compounding is so important. Yeah, um, this is definitely a quote I dropped, I reckon, during this episode. And Sam would have given me a look being like, oh, Kieran, with another quote. It's just um, another quote. Just a bit more philosophy on an episode about brain science. I think we ended up coming up with like a count meter of the number of quotes that we were both uh, putting on. But yeah, um, with this particular one, I think um, if you sort of you know, get 1% better every single day, for 365 days, you end up 37 times better than the start of the year. But if you get 1% worse every single day, you end up at 0.03 of where you're at. And it was the whole idea that what are our actual habits? They're our you know, personal automations. Like we're talking about automation you know, in the business world so much and just in the world generally. Um, but, you know, the whole idea, of, I think from James Clear's Atomic Habits, which we speak about here is, you know, you've probably got 60 to 80 conscious habits that you've got. And it'd be very interesting for anyone to say, hey, what are my positive habits and what are my negative habits? And actually listing all those, um, all those habits out with a plus, with a minus or with a neutral. And when Sam and I both did this, we were like, oh, there's actually a fair few negative ones there that we didn't realize that were actually there. Um, and I think the discovering that it was applying Pareto's principle saying, hey, what is like the one or two have like keystone habits that give rise to all the other habits taking place and you know exercise is normally one of those that i know personally when i exercise i go to sleep a lot earlier i sleep way better um, i'm less likely to go have maybe one or two glasses of wine before i go to sleep um, and so having i suppose those really clear um, habits and understanding what's positive what's negative is really the, the whole aspect of one's life i think there's a, a quote to end with you i think um jersey gorgic says like easy choices hard life and hard choices easy life it's sometimes easy just to remove the choice altogether. And those are the habits that we actually have. I love it. I, I just started breaking habits. I'd say when I first started working with John Asraf in 2016, and he had us write down like what things were holding us back. And, you know, you write them out and you think, oh, that's, is it really holding me back? Cause you don't want to get rid of it. It's like, it's going to take effort. And I remember one of the podcasts that you guys did, I don't remember where it was, but I think Kieran, you've cut out alcohol and sugars. Like you've done some sort of diet thing. Yes, and, on. and yeah. And, and I've always done that. Like starting January, I've always launched the year to, to launch it off. And, and I think, um, eventually when you get older, like when you're younger, you don't have to worry about this because, you know, things are running smoothly for you guys when you're younger. But when you get to 40, 50 and, and up, you got to start really taking health to a different level. Like you just can't have drinks like you could when you're in your 20s. And, and I'm guessing you guys are both in your 20s, right? Yeah, yeah, we are. In saying that, I definitely feel like I'm uh, rounding the corner on that ability to just have <laughs> drinks at will. 
I, at, at the ripe old age of 26, I'm already experiencing uh, hangovers and the aftermath from even a couple of glasses of wine. So I can relate, which is very embarrassing for me. <laughs> uh, wait, till, wait till you get up there 20 years later. So like I noticed. Don't, that, don't the, scare me, Andrea. Oh, Please no. don't scare me. <laughs> this <laughs> is so foreboding. So, so these are the things like you sit there and you write out, well, how can I improve my performance? Yeah. And then for me, it's like cutting out all the things that are, that I know are negative for my performance. And then, and then I would hear Dr. Amen say something like, well, mm you know, wine's not a health food. And I'd be like, did he really say that? And then I try and find someone else that would say it was okay to, to keep the thing that, you know, you got to cut. And then eventually you're like, okay, so let's, let's just cut it. And then you see the benefits are just insanely amazing that when you cut the thing that, you know, is bad, but it takes, it takes like, you got to get to the point where you're ready to do that. And I just thought your breaking habit thing was crazy to replace the bad habit with a good habit. Um, can you talk about that, Karen? Cause you've done it with foods and how did you do that? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think that was at the start of, start of this year. So I took um, basically six months off, uh, off drinking and, you know, changing my diet and exercising. And I think the main two things that helped largely with breaking a bad habit is again, I applied um, sort of James Clear's Atomic Habits principles, which is, you know, trying to make it difficult and making it um, invisible. So it's like out of sight, out of mind. Um, it's a lot easier to you know, avoid temptation that is to resist. So I would actually just not have any sugar in the house. I would not have any alcohol in the house. I would actually try to avoid going out in situations where I knew my friends um, would be drinking for at least the first month. And then when I got used to that as an environment, then I started to expose myself very gradually to situations where there was these sort of temptations, um, so to speak. And then as you rightly pointed out, after a while, you get to a stage, I think it was probably maybe like six weeks in that um, I had sort of replaced the old habit with a more productive uh, habit and was able to sort of resist uh, the temptation, but just had to sort of formulate that, that response um, all the way through. Because I know Sam, when we spoke about this, you did this as well. Um, you know, in previous years. And I think those were the, the key things. Yeah. For me, the big one was just replacing it. So uh, with food specifically going for a chocolate bar and instead replacing that with grabbing a piece of fruit every time and then making that the, the de facto replacement. Um, those little tweaks really helped me. Cause it doesn't take long, does it? To, to stop the habit. It's just the, the initial stage. Like for me, I think it was maybe after two weeks, no matter what it is, there's no more cravings for it. It's gone. And some things can actually taste yucky or gross when you've cut it out and you go back to it. You're like, oh, why did I even like that in the first place? But you have to have not had it for a while before you get to that spot. Did you guys notice that too? Yeah, particularly when, because I adopted fasting as well. Um, so sort of doing it 16 and 8. And I remember when I'd get to my meal, that was normally just like different vegetables and you know, some chicken and so on. It was the most delicious thing I've ever had in my life. <laughs> uh, when I had it for the first time, I was like, this is amazing. And then I remember I had like maybe, I sipped up once and I had Shake Shack once and my body felt horrific afterwards. And I didn't realize until that point that I got so used to a different diet and lifestyle that I, I really avoided it like the plague afterwards. Oh, I love it. I love listening to this kind of stuff, but it, it really helps to hear your podcast because you really talk about it from the brain level. And so I encourage anyone listening to go and listen to, to these episodes. They're powerful. And um, I don't know what episode this came from, but the notes that I wrote were at the top of the page of my, where I take my notes on my podcast. So I know I learned it from you guys, but can you talk about how opioids are a thousand times more dopamine than sex, what we would think to be the most pleasurable, because I'd love to understand how we could maybe monitor where we are with our dopamine levels and find healthy ways to increase it so that we don't turn into drug addicts. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I think um, from, from mine, I remember saying this, on, it was on the addiction episode, and you know, okay. when we talk about habits, they're sort of basically our deep learning mechanisms, all that goal-directed behavior, which is why dopamine has been so important for us to get to do stuff, which is tied with, um, you know, motivation. Um, and I think when we were going through this, we found out, you know, that the normal is about 50 nanograms per deciliter. Uh, on your best day, you're around about 100 nanograms per deciliter, um, which is akin to sex, which is around 92 to 100. On your worst day, you're at about 40. 
uh, as well. So it's only a little 10, like a little bit of a drop off. And then we found out opioids was like a thousand <laughs> and we're sitting there back scratching our heads being like, what on earth is going on here? And the, the mechanism for opioids more on the neurochemistry and neurobiology is, you know, that it mimics um, the shape of the neurotransmitter dopamine and, you know, uh, aids the reuptake or inhibits the reuptake of it. So you're basically flooding your dopamine with, um, so flooding your brain with dopamine every time you have these opioids, which leads to that sort of increasing sensation of a correlation between pleasure and the amount of dopamine um, that, that is present, which was crazy, crazy when we saw that. We were like, this is unbelievable. Yeah. I put it in bold. I was like, it was insane. What? And you can, it really gives context to why some things are so addicting. You know, if, if sex is a a thousand, a hundred nanograms and an opioid is 1000, there's a, there's a reason it becomes so addicting and so easily addicted to. Um, And there, there is, so there are some ways you can increase healthy ways. You can increase dopamine and monitor it throughout the day. And this is something we, we talked about a little bit off air, but one of the big things I think is making sure your body has enough of the raw ingredients. So the precursor to dopamine is called tyrosine. It's an amino acid. It's really, really prevalent in things like almonds, bananas, and certain fish. So making sure your body has enough tyrosine to build dopamine in order to have that in your brain is probably step number one. Now, the caveat being there is bioavailability. You can't just go and eat a million bananas and be the happiest person in the world. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. Why, not? Why is this not working? It's, it's not a cheat code. It's not a dopamine cheat code. But, but that's kind of table stakes for having enough in the first place. Uh, and then the, the second, second thing is really just increasing the events uh, and experiences you have that flood your brain with dopamine. So, you know, uh, playing sports, getting wins, doing things that you love and bring you pleasure, um, having good conversations with people you really enjoy. All these things uh, release dopamine into the brain uh, because they're socially rewarding or they're intrinsically rewarding. And so they can increase your levels of dopamine naturally in really, really healthy ways. Very helpful. Very helpful because as soon as I saw that, I thought, well, good thing I've never been a drug addict because I could see how, <laughs> how it happens a thousand oh, yeah. times. I just was like, whoa, no wonder it's the, there's such a problem with it. it. They should really be talking about the, the connection there with the brain and why it's so addictive for people. Like, you know, especially if you think back to how health conscious people like Prince got addicted, mm. you know, it can happen to anybody. Yeah, it can. It's just, it's a massive, uh, like biofeedback hack, basically these drugs that they trick our brain into wanting them because they're just so out of this world in terms of the, the pleasure sensation and the motivation they provide to the brain. Yeah. It's good to know. And I wish we were kind of taught this in school, but they, they definitely. One day. Agreed. Agreed. But so, um, so in your Breaking Everyday Addictions episode where that came from, can you talk about dopamine fasting and why it's not at all effective? And the crazy thing about this was that I actually had a Twitter message from someone that I hadn't heard from in a while. And they just like shot me this, this message saying, you know, what do you think about dopamine fasting? And I hadn't even heard about it. And then he sent me this article from Silicon Valley about these tech guys that were encouraging taking tech breaks. And then I heard it on that episode. Why do you say that tech breaks don't work with the brain in mind? So I think uh, there's a bit of disclaimer here. And the the problem is the way it's labeled. So the idea of doing a dopamine fast is basically impossible because every time you move, every time you breathe, every time you think, every time you talk to someone, your brain is releasing dopamine. So if you were to fast from that, you'd be experiencing, (laughs) uh, you wouldn't do anything. You physically, you'd probably die. Like the, the brain uses dopamine to encourage you to do every single thing, every life centric thing uh, is dopamine driven. So you can't really fast from it. And I have read those, those Silicon Valley articles with all the tech pundits and gurus talking about uh, dopamine. Sam has the biggest rant about this. This is the funniest thing. Funniest thing. <laughs> I did. I, I got a bit of a bee in my bonnet because it's one of those things that like, you know, comes around as, as being really popular. Um, even though scientifically, you, you wouldn't reduce dopamine. If you stop using technology, you don't suddenly stop producing dopamine in the brain. And so you're not really fasting from it. 
what you are fasting from is the the sources which elicit that dopamine release. So you're fasting from using technology to gain that dopamine and probably substituting it with other activities um, that you're going out through your day. So I think there's, there is some merit to the idea of having a, a, a break from technology, but you just can't call it a dopamine fast. It's just, it's just not, not, it's just not on. It's not okay, correct. It's not the right term. Yeah. And I heard, I heard you guys talking about, you know, in your, one of your social media yep. lessons, the taking breaks from social media and what ones were addictive. And so I remember that. So I know that it, it makes sense, but yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. It's you're replacing it with something else, right? Yeah, exactly. It's about replacing it, but also then breaking that, that pattern and that habit of relying on uh, technology to provide the, 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 the dopamine eliciting stimulus. Got it. So what about your relationship and dating apps episode? Was that really your most downloaded? <laughs> uh, you mentioned it during the whole coronavirus phase. And, and uh, I don't know if you guys monitor your audience as well to see like, because I, I've never even used a dating app. And, but I listened to it, so I, it, doesn't, it doesn't even matter like what age your audience was. I was kind of curious what, what you're going to say about that app. But so what happens to our brain when we're in love? And why do you think this episode was so popular over the past few months? Yeah, it's, uh, it actually was our most popular one. And we were, we were thinking about why, why was this the case? Because um, when Sam and I sort of created the episode, we were like, look, relationships are under a lot of stress dating's completely changed given you know COVID-19 lockdowns around the world um, and so we wanted to just deep dive and be like what's the neuroscience behind this and basically what what happens when you start to, to fall in love and I think we've you know, all been through this is that your prefrontal cortex starts to completely shut down um, absolutely like you start to get those rose tinted tinted glasses um, and you know you've got testosterone you've got estrogen these hormones driving um, that behavior um, in terms of your sexual appetite and then you've got dopamine and serotonin uh, which are part of the reward centers that are linked with obviously the addictions we spoke about so you literally get addicted to, to love um, which is pretty nuts to think and you know, they know that feeling of you know you can't think you can't breathe you're like wow i need this person in my life right now and you can't put down my phone um, and then you know you've got oxytocin and vasopressin that play, play a role in you know creating monogamous relationships after the 18 months but what we were trying to petition for was we wanted to get the emojis to replace uh, love hearts with brain hearts simply because it's, you know, the, the heart palpitations are the outcome or the physiological response of what's actually going on uh, in the brain. And we thought that, I think that that's when people realize, oh, wow, what's the scientific lens of, of love? We haven't really thought about that too much. We think about, you know, the romanticism behind it as opposed to, you know, the practical neuroscience of what's going on in the brain. It's, it's a lot to think about because my um, neuroscience researcher did a whole episode on the fact that he doesn't believe that, that uh, love exists in the brain. And he did a big episode on it. And I just was like, wait, what? I can't, I, I can't believe this because I know it's all chemicals, but um, I'll have to go back and perhaps look at some of the points he said and put it in when I edit the video, but uh, he doesn't believe that love um, and is effective in neuroscience. So I'll have to look at it. My apologies. I said that was a really interesting point and it probably comes down to how you define it. They have a similar problem with feelings and emotions. Like there is this massive divide in the neuroscience community about where feelings happen, where emotions happen. And part of the problem is that some people define feelings as emotions and some people define emotions as something completely different from feelings. So this plays out in so much of the literature and so much of the research where it's more, you know, oh, this is what it actually is. And this is where it's happening. And then someone else says, no, 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 this is what it is. And this is where it doesn't happen. Definitions are important. Absolutely. So I want to thank you both so much for the shout out in your last episode on taming your emotions with brain science. And I was listening to the episode and taking notes and because right now taming my emotions is something I'm always working on, especially with raising two kids. And there's always something crazy that's going on and I'm trying to live by example and not always doing well. So when you uh, quoted me in there, I was caught off guard, but then I actually thought about it and I thought, well, I'm much better now than I was five years ago because I've been practicing meditation. So I'm able to 
put that pause in there that you talked about. So I created this graphic on that episode because I thought this is such important stuff. And then that graphic just blew up on all my social media. Some of my old bosses started sharing it. And, and I thought, well, this is great because wow. I'm going to be talking to you guys in, in a couple of days anyway. But um, why is this pause so important? You said something like you've got to stop the loop create a pause because your brain becomes impaired when you're angry. So why do we need to stop and create that pause to stay in control of our emotions? That is a really great question. It's analogous to imagine like a a factory, right? And our brain's the factory. And when we experience a really intense emotion, it's like something breaking down. Maybe there's a fire happening or machines breaking down. If in that moment you try to change the entire factory, it'd be chaos. There's all these things going on. But say you wait an hour or two for things to subside, um, everyone would be a little bit calmer in the factory. The emergency and the threat's no longer there. Suddenly making decisions as to how do you prevent that next time is a lot easier. And how it works in the brain is basically in that moment when you're experiencing that emotion, Uh, that's when the brain is experiencing the most intensity. Your brain's flooded with the neurotransmitters, uh, whatever they may be. Uh, The parts of your brain associated with whatever feeling you're you're experiencing are most active. So if you take a second to pause then, what happens is the, the brain basically calms down. And the excitation that happens from all those neurotransmitters, from the experience you had that caused that emotion, start to subside. And as a result, you kind of shift resources back to the thinking part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex, you regain control just by pure fact of waiting and allowing those areas that had flared up to, to calm down a little bit. And it's really important when you think about like, this idea of stopping the loop. Um, we call it rumination is what it's called in psychology. Because in the moment when you're in that loop, the more you focus on it, the more you're triggering that emotion you're telling your brain, oh my God, this is so bad. And over and over again, you're reactivating those same neural pathways that are responsible for, for feeling that emotion, thereby making it even more intense. But the second you stop and pause, then your brain has time to calm down, to relax a little bit as the neurotransmitters sparse out the brain and move away and suddenly you gain control again. Wow, you you explained that really well, Samuel. You should be a you're a good good teacher because I, I understand it now how you explain it. You know, like it, it just makes sense. Stop the neurotransmitters from flooding the brain. And you know, what whether you're gonna go grab a basketball and shoot some hoops or go for a run or just stop what you're doing and do something else. It's stopping yeah. the escalation of those neurotransmitters. I never thought about it like that. Isn't it amazing that we've gone through our lives this far and we've never really thought about what's happening at a brain level when things are happening? This is crazy to me. Thank you for that compliment. And yeah, it, it blows my mind. Complete pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> well, fine. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, uh, just as we close out the podcast, do you guys have any final thoughts of where you see your Brain Tools podcast going? Because I think what you started is amazing. Um, I'm I'm a follower. I'm always promoting you guys, but putting links oh, in there. You. It's just uh, what you guys are doing. It's it's really helping me because I don't have I didn't go to school for this. As all I have is my neuroscience researcher and I, I think he gets tired of me you know going wait what what do you mean by that and then so I can just tap into your podcast and get a quick evidence science-based explanation that that helps me immediately so just thinking about where you are now where do you see your podcast going in the next one three five years what's your vision yeah, it's a really good question um I'll, I'll, I'll chime in first I think the thing that Sam and I, when we first started this, was all about, and as you said, democratizing brain science. We're making it as easy as possible for people to use it. And so I think what we're, what we're looking at, and definitely in the new term, it's 12 months, is the way that we've structured the episodes. It's all about now doing a deep dive into a particular topic. So our current one is emotions, which is obviously timely given having a CL um, Meet Neuroscience podcast. 
Um, but then, you know, looking at things like business and looking at things like, um, you know, what happened in the States at the moment with you know, politics, like the neuroscience of politics and so on and so forth. So finding those, those volumes and doing a deep dive so people actually can make better sense of what's going on with their reactions, make better sense of what's going on in their brain is really the outcome. So they actually do stuff because that's where we want is like that self-directed neuroplasticity people to do things that can end up, you know, leading to hopefully a change, uh, change in their brain. So that's definitely um, happening over the next six months. Yeah, I think even from more of a like a longitudinal couple of year perspective, we'd love to get to the point where we have, you know, a, a massive host uh, and variety of topics uh, across the brain so that we can be a bit of a one-stop shop resource for anyone who wants to understand their brain but doesn't want to spend the next three years digging through academic journals and trying to figure out what the hell an ROI means and why the precuneries is so important for XYZ process. And most people just... They don't have time and it probably doesn't help them. So we'd love to be that, that resource for people to understand their brain in really easy to understand ways and then take some action. That's why we have six practical uh, brain tools at the end of every episode. So, so there's something you can actually do. Yep. That definitely sets you apart. That's why I tune in for sure. It's like a quick way to access. So how do I improve my well-being well here they are pulled right out so you can access them i think it's great i want to thank you both so much if anyone wants to find your podcast is the best place spotify and itunes just go to brain tools and type that in and they'll it'll pull up yep so we're on spotify uh and itunes type in brain tools we're the only one there we've got a big yellow uh display picture you, you can't miss it it's very bright um we're also on Podbean uh as brain tools podcast there too um so those are probably the best ways to do that and if anyone is interested you're welcome to follow us uh, on linkedin too i post a bit of content there as well that's where we first initially met um so my linkedin's just samuel holston and we've got a brain tools linkedin too Absolutely. Well, I'll put all this in the show notes and I, Kieran and Samuel, I could talk to you guys all night. Um, it's night for me, but day for you guys. So, but I, I know I got to let you get back to work over there. And I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to do this because when I first met you on LinkedIn, Samuel, I asked you right away, as soon as you said you've been studying the brain since you were 15, I thought, well, I want you on my podcast. So it's taken this long but I, I knew I, I needed to have you guys in, and it's just been so much more fun, I think, to have followed your show rather than just have grabbed you in that first week. And then I didn't even really know what you guys were capable of with your podcast and what you're focused on. So uh, I just want to thank you both for doing this and for all you're doing for the field of neuroscience, because it's helping me immensely. And I know everyone that tunes in and everyone that I've referred to has said the same thing. So thanks so much, guys. Thank you. That's uh, very, very kind words and very, very humbling. And uh, the, the compliment goes back to you. Your podcast is absolutely amazing. You clearly got a very loyal uh, following. Um, and so I think what we're, what we're both collectively hopefully doing for neuroscience is, uh, is a positive thing. Well, let's keep going and supporting each other <laughs> together. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a wonderful day. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.